Lord, we come before you and just ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead and direct us as we go into this and, and see this beautiful section on the prophet that Moses prophesies about. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Deuteronomy 18, starting at verse 15. The Lord your God will rise up unto you a prophet from the midst of you, of your brethren, like unto me, unto him you shall hearken. According to all that you desire of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembling, saying, Let us not hear the word of the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise up, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto you, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word of the Lord, the word which the Lord has not spoken, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. But the prophet which has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So we're going to look at this. Uh, if you have many of the King James Bibles in, this, in verse 15, the word prophet has a capital P because most people believe that, most scholars believe that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophet to come was Jesus and that makes sense um, it it do, doesn't really matter yeah on the same verse oh okay yeah because it's got a different prophet later on when it talks about it so verse 15 the Lord your God will rise up to you a prophet from the midst of you of your brethren, like unto me, unto him shall you hearken. Remember now, we've talked about this when we first started this book. This is one long message from Moses. They're, they're on the east side of the Jordan, getting ready to cross into the promised land. Moses knows that he's not going into the promised land and that it's time for the people to go in, and he's reviewing everything that's happened for 40 years. So this is, uh, this is why it's so repetitive, especially as we've done every book in order. This book is very repetitive to what we've been covering for the last three years. Because he's going, this is what God's done. This is the rules that he has. This is the sacrifices that he's done. They had the Ten Commandments in, in Deuteronomy in chapter 5. We had the, the, the uh, feast that we covered just a couple of weeks ago. We have the sacrifices that were recovered. He's going over everything. And why is he going over everything? Because these people getting ready to go into Israel, into the promised land, are the children of the people who left Egypt. So they don't know the whole story. They, well, they've heard a lot of the story, but Moses is making sure that they know the whole story. That there's no gaps. There's no, there's, when they go into the promised land, they're going to have no reason not to know exactly what God has said. Because he's repeating everything in one big, long, long speech. 
he didn't not going over the, the building of the temple, but he's going over the priest duties and the sacrifices and and he's going, but God, but he says, God will rise up a prophet from your midst of you. Now, one of the things we've talked about is in the is uh, Hebrew way of thinking, every prophecy has an immediate pro- uh, fulfillment and long-term fulfillments. And this is a problem. Sometimes we as Gentiles, we look at this and we always think of, oh, it's only talking about the future. But in their mind, they go, no, it has this near term and it has a future. When Isaiah said that a virgin will give birth to a, to a, to a child, it was referring to Jesus with Mary, but the king had just had a young person get married and that person had a baby within that period of time. And they said that that was the, that was the immediate fulfillment of that verse. And this happens oftentimes in the scriptures. They look and there's an immediate and a long term. And here, I agree with most of the scholars that it's probably talking about Jesus as the primary, the prophet that's going to be raised up. But every prophet between Samuel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, uh, Isaiah, uh, Elijah, Elisha, all those long line of prophets were part of the prophets that would come up behind Moses and teach the people. And for the most part, they were rejected. Israel has had a long history of rejecting their prophets and, and punishing them to the point of it said that Isaiah was put into a log and sawn into two. Jeremiah, every time he spoke, got thrown into a pit or, a, or into, the, into the dungeon. Uh, Elijah was preaching to the, to the king of, of Israel and being chased all over Israel because he wanted to arrest him and kill him. We see that over and over by the prophets. Israel and Judah persecuted the, the prophets. And he said, but... Moses is going, there will be one, and you shall listen to him, and, you, and he's really saying, listen and obey, and he's trying to get them a warning ahead of time. This is the job of people who teach the Bible, is to give warning that things are coming. Now, oftentimes, the words fall on deaf ears, and people ignore them. Handful, the remnant that we talked about last night, will listen and obey, but for many people, they hear these messages and they, they, they go just like last night's in, in Ezekiel. Uh, you know, it's not near, it's not coming. It's, it, if it comes, it'll be in the future. Just as in Noah's day, it says that they were eating, drinking, marrying, you know, having their life right up until the day that the rain fell. And, and Noah had spent 200 years, 120 years preaching, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, and the people refuse to believe. This is something we need to be very careful and have a very tender heart that when we're listening to God, we respond to his warnings. We respond to what he says. Because it is real easy to say, well, this, it doesn't mean me. And that's the human way anyway. It doesn't mean me. It means everybody else because I'm, I'm generally pretty good. I'm not, I'm not the one God's going to judge. And humans will do this over and over again and kind of push it off. And it says, verse 16, According to all that you desire of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembling, saying, Let us not hear again the voice of the Lord, 
my God, let us not see this great fire anymore that I die not. Remember that Horeb is another name for Sinai. So when you see that word Horeb, it's talking about Sinai. The mountain. The mountain, Mount Sinai. Yeah, the, where, they, where the law was given. And he said, you desired, you inquired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly that says, and if you recall, we go back into that story in, in uh, Exodus where God spoke to the people. And if you remember, their attitude was, we don't want to hear this because they heard the thundering and they saw the lightning and they saw the smoke on the mountain and they heard the, they heard the voice of God and they turned to Moses and said, you go up and talk to God for us. We do not want to hear his voice. This, that was probably one of the saddest moments of their day to reject God when he's talking to them. Most of us would love to be able to hear the voice of God, or at least we think we would. We probably would react pretty much the same way the Israelites did. We'd fall on our face and say, Get, uh, no, you know, why? Because God is so holy that our, spirit, our, our flesh would just be turned away from him and reject him. And if we see, and this is why I talk about it, the closer we get to God, the more we see ourselves as unrighteous and unholy, even though we are probably more holy and more righteous than we were before we saw him. Because he wouldn't, we wouldn't see him unless he brings us up to a certain point. But when we start seeing ourselves in comparison to God, we start realizing how worthless we are. No matter how good we are comparing to other people. All our righteousness is filthy rags. But it becomes, the, the idea is literally, as we draw closer to God and we see perfection, or we start to see perfection, we start to realize how imperfect we are. And it's, uh, you know, I don't know colors very well, but you know, there's, you know, if you want to go buy white paint, you can go all the way from what's supposed to be pure white down to opaque and eggshell and, you know, and to me, they're all white. Some of them, are, some of them especially as you get down to the far side, look a lot dingier than, than white. But I use this as an example. God would be that perfect white. And then the closer we draw to him, the more we realize we're not even in white, we're still in yellow and and all these other pale colors, you know, we, we, we compare ourselves, and the problem is in humans, we compare ourselves against other humans. Usually we compare ourselves against people who are worse than us to say that we're doing good. But even if we compare ourselves to ourselves as we're progressing with God, we go, I am doing much better today than I did last year or 10 years ago. But then we start drawing close to God and we realize, oh, God's standard still yeah, way down there in Mexico from here, you know, I'm here and God's way down there in Mexico and I'm not even, not even close to where I'm supposed to be. And the people in, at Mount Sinai did just that. No, God, we don't want your holiness. We don't, need, we don't want to hear your voice. We're hearing the holiness. We're, we're seeing your holiness. We're feeling your holiness. You, please stay away from us. Moses, you go talk to him. And... Oftentimes, we do that same type of thing with God. And I've seen this. If somebody has sin in their life, the last thing they really want to do when they're being convicted is to read their Bible 
pray, come to church, because they're not responding to God. And God is saying, I want you to be holy like I am, and the only way that happens is through him. But the people in that day said, don't let us hear the voice of God again, and we don't want to see that great fire on the mountain. Moses, you go talk to him. And uh, Moses goes in verse 17, and the Lord said, they have spoken well that which they have, spoke, have said. They were not righteous enough to be, into, in, be hearing God's word. This is one of the things when we do communion, we say the same thing. Get yourself right before God because this is a precious event that we, we celebrate. And not to the extreme that the Catholics take it where, they, where it becomes the literal blood and body of Christ, okay? We're not going that far, but it is still a very precious thing because it's the symbolism of how much it cost God to bring us to him. And this is something that we want to be looking at. How much does our salvation cost? This is something that we have a hard time understanding because we get so wrapped up in God's grace and his, for, and his forgiveness that sometimes we forgive that the only reason we have that cost Jesus Christ everything. He had to die. And not an easy death. He had to have the brutal, punishing death. He became sin for the Father and had the Father separate himself from Jesus. First time in all of eternity they had ever been separated was on that cross when he became sin. And he became sin so that he could buy us back and pay for our debt. What a penalty he paid so that we could have a relationship with God. And I, I hope you understand that. I mean, it, we, we, under, we understand and we think about that, how the beating he took is in the flesh. But do you realize that before he became sin, he could not have died? Because death is the wages of sin. Okay? Without sin, he could not have died because he had nothing to, be de to die for. He would have been in the position of Adam and Eve as they were created to be perfect and live forever. And he took on our sin and he died. And the Father rejected him. And then they resurrected him up in the, in, in, in the newness of life and so that we can have that same life. But he's saying, you, they heard their voice and they rejected him. Why? Because they really didn't know God at that point in time. Because think about this. They had spent hundreds of years in Egypt. They did not have a lot of rules anyway. They did not have the Ten Commandments. They did not have the laws. They went into Egypt. And for all practical purposes, even though they became slaves in that country, they lived very much like Egyptians. They had their God, but they were influenced by Egypt. So they had no Ten they didn't have the Ten Commandments in Egypt until Exodus left. Now, it doesn't mean they didn't know any rules of God and any behavior of God, but they didn't have the laws that God's going to give them. All they had was the stories of Abraham leaving and coming and being blessed and that they were to honor God. They knew they were supposed to worship God. It, it seems that they were not even practicing circumcision during, during that time like they were supposed to. And that was the one rule they were told to do because Moses did not seem to be uh, circumcised and he did not circumcise his two children. Uh, 
which was the whole, we, back in Exodus when we talked all about that uh, time when they, God was going to come and kill Moses because of that. And uh, Zipporah took the knife and, and circumcised the, the boys. And, uh, but we see all of these different rules and they lived differently. And by the time they come into eat, are delivered from Egypt, they're now seeing the power of God, but they still have not accepted God as the one and only strong power. And we see that because they start worshiping the golden calf when Moses is gone for a while. And they're doing all this orgy stuff when Moses comes down and they're just having a, all this stuff that's going on and Moses comes down with the laws and breaks them because he's so angry. And we've talked about that. Moses had a very bad temper. You see it all through there. He had really bad temper. But he says, God says that you've spoken correctly. You were not in a place to hear him. We as Christians always need to make sure we're keeping ourselves in a place where we hear God, that we're confessing our sins, we're repenting from our sins, we're living in a lifestyle that draws us to God. Because if we don't live in repentance and confession of our sins, we will not want to be around God. And all of us have probably been there at some point in our life where we've lived, lived in our sinful state and, and said, I'm not, I, don't want, I don't even want to go near God because... I know how bad I am. And he's saying, well, come to me anyway. Get, get your, get, confess your sins and repent and get back into fellowship. But our flesh says, no, I can't do that. I can't be in his fellowship. Why? Because it brings conviction. When we come before the holy God, that holiness causes conviction. We get into his word, it causes conviction. We get into the, um, a good message and it causes conviction. We get around other Christians and it causes conviction because they bring God into our presence and it's amazing sometimes when you're you know I've had people get mad just because I'm there they go you're making me feel bad I haven't said a word <laughs> you know but you you bring God into their presence and they don't like that when God is brought into their presence it convicts Yeah, that's the way God does it. And I have said this over and over. We follow, you know, I'm encouraging everybody to follow this pattern in, the, in, their, in their Bible reading. The amazing thing to me is by following, even though we follow a Bible reading pattern, and I have for a long time, it seems that whatever I read that day is what I need for that day. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the same pattern. I've read the same thing every year, every day of that, on, on that day, that and yet it still ends up being just what I need to hear for that day. Well, I'll hear a message on the radio and it's what I need to hear or it's what I need to, when I get ready to study for one of the lessons, I'm going, oh yeah, what do you, this pastor said something, I can, I can tie that in with it. It's an amazing thing how real and alive God's word is. And the most important thing is if we can get young people to stay strong with God rather than having this walk away from God stuff because but in many cases these kids are walking away from God because they're trying to follow their parents beliefs to start with and that and if your parents aren't really strong you know if your parents are kind of wishy-washy and you and they're looking at them trying to follow their belief system and then all of a sudden somebody challenges it they drop aside it has to become real God has to become real to each individual. And that's us as adults, teenagers, children. Children can have a real relationship with Jesus that will last the rest of their life. 
teenagers can have a real relationship with Jesus Christ that will last the rest of their life if we challenge them to make it real to them and not just because. And this is something that's very important. We need to be ready to give answers to those in our life, you know, especially younger people around us in our life, because the Bible has answers. The Bible has reasons. I was listening to a pastor the other day who says the same thing I said. The Bible is so full of absolute truth that it's not hard to be, it's not a, a leap of faith, a blind leap off of a cliff to, to believe it. It's very rational, it's very real, it's very logical. The problem that the world has, especially if they're not raised up really good with, with a Christian family that says there's answers, the world tells us it's just a bunch of fairy tales and you have to, you know, you have to stop thinking. Well, the really sad thing is you have to stop thinking to believe most of what the world says and not stop thinking when you come to the Bible. Because it's amazing what the world says. You know, something as simple as evolution and creationism. Science shows us that the world is young. It really does. There's, there's multiple proofs that the world is very young. All over the place. The ones that all are built upon this old earth idea, well, they do wonderful things like age the rock, tell you the age of the rock by the fossil that's in it, and they tell the age of the fossil by what rock it's in. And so, you know, and if you think about that for a moment, it's like, okay, so I say one is, you know, I, I just pick a date and say something is that old, and then I prove it by saying that what the fossil that is three, you know, 300 million years old is in that rock. So obviously the rock is 300 million years. Or I say the rock is 300 million years and it's got a fossil in it, so it's got a, you know, but there's no proof about it. People will tell you they do carbon-14 dating on it. Well, the half-life of carbon-14 is only 8,000 years. So any number above 8,000 years that they tell you is garbage. <laughs> you know, we've got to look at these things. We've got to look at some of the assumptions that they, they want. We know that life does not spontaneously generate from nothing unless you're an evolutionist who says that at the very beginning of everything, life had to sp spontaneously generate from nothing even though we know it doesn't happen, okay? But you see these illogical things that they put together without even thinking. They're not thinking. They're, they've been told by their smart professors who, are build, who say they're, they're basing it all on science, and they go, I believe what that person says. <laughs> they didn't give me any proof for it, but because they're smart, they've got degrees, they've got... They've spent years studying this. They must know what they're talking about. The God of the universe who gave us his book can't know what he's talking about. And it's very logical. We need to be careful about this. We need to be able to challenge our young people. Why do you believe what you are believing? I did this when I first moved to, to Kingman. I did this to my niece and nephew all the time. Why are you believing what you're believing? Well, I learned it in school, but why? What's the proof? Because they were learning. They were spouting evolution. They were spouting socialistic ideas. They were spouting all these things. And I go, why do you believe it? Then, not even the Bible is in any, any, any different God. Garbage science that they teach in school makes it hard to believe in creationism. I don't even need them to speak. I don't even want them necessarily to think spiritually. I want them to think. You go up to anybody who believes in evolution and you say, give me one example of something changing from one species to another. Anywhere, anytime, there is zero evidence. Logically, 
there is no proof of evolution. Even greatest evolutionists will tell, have on record as saying there is very big problems with evolution, but we cannot accept the alternative. What's the alternative? That God started everything. Why can't you accept that God started everything? Because if God started everything, he has the right to make rules that you have to obey. You have to have faith in something. The evolutionist has faith that the impossible happened. The, the Christian has faith that there is a God who made things happen. I think it's a whole lot easier to believe in a God that made things happen than that the impossible through natural means happened. That makes no sense to me at all. That, that, is just, that is just a great leap of faith that I can't make. At some point, you have to believe that there is something that is eternal. For the evolutionist, what is eternal is matter and energy. But the laws of thermodynamics say that everything tends toward entropy, which means that if matter and energy was eternal, we would be in a dead universe because everything would be stopped moving because that's what it tends to do. So if matter was eternal, we would be in a dead universe at this point in time. Well, then they, they won't come back. Well, maybe we're in the middle. No, if it was eternal, no matter where we are here, we're at the end of it, even though there's more to come because it was so far back into the past that it keeps going forever, which means we would be at a dead universe. And it gets into some very hard things to comprehend and, and understand, but you have to have something that is beyond nature that started everything. There has to be a supernatural that started everything. Now, does that prove that it, our God is Christian Bible? No, but it proves you have to have something beyond nature that starts the process. But God is supernatural. I believe that science proves a supernatural being in the beginning. Now, it doesn't necessarily prove that it, our God is a supernatural being that starts it. Okay, because you cannot have nature starting itself. Contrary to what some of these guys want to talk about, nature could not create itself because it didn't exist to create itself. And yet evolution wants to say that nature created itself somehow. So there has to be something out there that started everything in motion. Now, so to me, I believe that science proves that there has to be a supernatural. What supernatural? Then we get into the different supernatural realms and start taking the arguments. So everything had to have something that is the prime mover of it. And so this is, I don't know how we got on all this, but it's fine. It's, it's, it is important for us to understand that we have to have something that starts it. And then we go, okay, out of all the different supernatural explanations, which one has, fits into the evidence best? Our scriptures fits into the you know, evidence the best on that. The, Navigation, the stars, the rain cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, all of this stuff has been in here. The fact that the sun, that the earth goes around the sun was in the scriptures. The fact that we're a, a ball hanging in space was in the scriptures. I mean, all of it is in the scriptures. It's the only scriptures out there that has, now it's not a science book, it's not going to teach you everything, but you see everything there. And God is just so wonderful. God, and this is what I say, Truth is never afraid to be examined. 
always you can look at truth and examine it. You can cross-examine truth and, and know that it's going to hold up. The Bible holds up really well. Why do we have all the oil and fossils that we have? Well, the Bible tells us we had a great flood that lasted, that flooded the whole world and put everything under high pressure. How do you get a fossil? You have the dead, a dead uh, organism get buried real quick and put under high pressure. Okay, To have as many fossils as we have in this world, and then you throw in the worldwide flood in Genesis, and you go, wow, we see just what you would want to see. And what do we see? We see millions of dead things buried all over the world. And how do we see them? The most small ones that would not be able to get out of the way, lots of them buried deep. And the more complex things, less and less of them as, as you go up. Why would there be less and less of them? Because something like a man would be swimming on top of the water for most of the time, trying to get away until he finally gets exhausted and just falls into the water. Most of the animals would have done the same thing. Most of the animals would, you know, would have gone to the high ground and then swam around or sat on logs until they just fell off in exhaustion and bloated up and died in the, in the water. So very few higher complex animals would be fossilized, which makes a lot of sense. We see all of it when we take these things in and we say, what would you expect if you saw a big flood? This is what you'd expect. What do we see as we look at it? We see just that. What do we see as we do all these different things? We see all the, the way the Bible comes out. And we look at the, the, the age of our sun, how much helium is in our sun. The sun only has enough helium to only be about 10 to, 10 to 20,000 years old maximum. And I've heard it down as low as eight because there's not enough helium there. We also know the, the way that it would contract because it uses fusion and joins the elements together. Which meant that if, if it was three or four hundred million years old, then it would have been way out in, encompassing our entire solar system. So the solar system wouldn't have had time to, to evolve the way they want it to evolve. I mean, we look at the science out there and say, it doesn't make sense for what you're saying. And does that prove creation? No, it just proves that the one side is, is really grasping at straws and trying to make us believe things. And again, we need to think. We need to challenge people to think. We need to challenge people to really look at the evidence. And I've said this before, um, we've got all kinds of people. Most of the greatest apologists started out their career before being an apologist trying to disprove the Bible. Okay, uh, Lee Strobel, you know, he's our most recent one that's come along. You know, his wife went and became a religious nut, so he decided he was going to prove to her that Christianity wasn't, wasn't right. Ended up becoming a Christian and becoming an apologist. Uh, you know, all these, Josh McDowell, you know, was in college saying, okay, you know, they've got these crazy Christians over here in this, in this uh, Christian fraternity or whatever it was. I'm going to go spend some time proving Christianity wrong. Ended up becoming a Christian. Over and over and over again, people who have tried to be honest researchers and try to disprove Christianity come to the conclusion that it ha must be correct. And it's an amazing thing that they do. They, they come and they try to disprove it and they find out, oh, 
It's the only thing that makes sense. Look at, look at all these prophecies. Look at all these, these truths. Look at all the science that's been, been peppered through the, through the Old Testament long before we supposedly knew any of the science. And, and you know, we look at the predictions of things that happened and go, wow, you know, look at all of this. We look at the creation story as opposed to evolution story and go, this one makes a lot more sense. We look at Jesus who died on the cross and was resurrected and we, and we look at the evidence for the resurrection and say, wow, it is obvious that this man died and that he rose again. Look at all the evidence. And you come down to it and go on. You finally get to the place where you look at the evidence and say, it's got to be true. And this is why for most of us, the challenge that I would have for you, if you have somebody who is in your family who is really anti-Christian, Challenge them. Challenge them to disprove Christianity. To truly disprove Christianity from a thinking point of view. Now they have to come in with the right mindset because otherwise they're just going to believe the, the garbage. They're going to go out there and say, well, so-and-so said this. No, no, no. I don't care what so-and-so said. Get in and disprove the answers. Because there's all kinds of weird things that people say who have long degrees at the end of their name and say, well, I know these things, and well, what is your proof? What is your evidence? And we get back into the proofs and evidences, and they don't hold up. The Bible holds up always under the, under the task of being proven. Always has, always will. Man has never gotten smart enough to disprove the Bible because it can't be done. To verse uh, 18. I will rise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he, and he shall speak them unto all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, he which shall speak in my name, I will require it of. God says, I'm going to raise up prophets. And we see a long line of prophets all through the scriptures. And Jesus ultimately, in his physical entity, was the last of the great prophets. And he preached God's word. He, pro, he taught what it was. And he even said to the Pharisees in, in the New Testament, Moses spoke of me. Probably referring back to this scripture. Moses spoke of me. Now Moses spoke of him many other times as well because we've talked about how Jesus is in the temple. He's the rock that, that brought forth water. He's the, he's the one that, uh, that uh, walked with them and led them. Okay, we see him all through here, but I think this is a very clear sign that Jesus said, he spoke of me. I'm the one basically saying, I'm the one that's coming that will speak the word of God. And it says, and it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken or obey my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. God requires us to give an account for what we hear. Now, for us as Christians, that means we've got a lot to be accountable for in our lives if we're, if we're following, we're in the Bible and we're, we're teaching and we're, and we're listening to teaching. Hopefully, we're obeying more than we're disobeying. But this also means the world is going to be required for what they hear. And they've rejected all of it because they've rejected Christ. Will the world ever believe the scriptures without God being the one that, that shows them? Probably not. Why? Because the flesh doesn't want to. The flesh does not want to be accountable to God. 
And this is why evolution is held up in, as, a, as a counter again. Not because it has any scientific value, not because it is even worth anything, but because it denies that there's a God that holds you accountable. If all we are is a bunch of random changes that have mutated into who we are, there is nobody and nothing that can tell us right, what's right and what's wrong, which is why evolution has its stronghold in the world. It's a wonderful idea that there's no higher being that I have to be accountable for. If, on the other hand, God, there is a God who created everything, he has the right to give rules, and he has the right to demand obedience, which is where we are as Christians. We know that there's a God, he created everything, he gave us rules, and he deserves to be obeyed. Well, not even just deserves to be obeyed, he demands to be obeyed because he is God. And this is something we've got to understand. Why do we obey God? Because he created everything. He is the ruler of all. He is the sovereign. He is the Lord. He is the master. He has the right to do what he wants with his stuff. If you own a farm and you're raising animals, those animals are yours to do with what you want. When it's time to, time to butcher them off for sale to, to, the, to the restaurants and grocery stores, you kill the animals you want and you keep the animals you want to live alone. Why? Because they're yours. <laughs> okay? God has the right to do with us whatever he wants because he is Lord. Paul said it in some, some vessels were made for dishonor and some for honor. God uses us the way he wants to use us. And it's his right to use us the way he wants to use us. If he wants to give you great blessings and make you a billionaire, then that's his right to make you, give you great blessings and make you a millionaire. If he wants to make you a pauper living in, living in the backside of the dump, dump in India, he has the right to do that because he's the creator. And he doesn't have to give an account to anybody for doing so. Because he is in charge. Now he will give us the chance to follow him. But you know, no matter where you are on that scale, when you're blessed by God, it's be, it is blessing by God. You have that great desire and that inner happiness, the inner fulfillment, whether you're the billionaire or the, or the person living on nothing. Paul said, I've learned to be content with much and with little. The key for us as Christians is, are we going to be at peace with what God has given us to do? Okay, that doesn't mean we don't work to try to better our situation. But am I working because God has given me the skills and I want to? Or am I working because I'm putting God, my, my faith in, in, my, in my money? Okay. God expects us to work. He expects us to work. We are to work. But the point is, when I say that, is our, is our whole life based on work? And my life was at one point in time. Everything was about work. I worked and I tried to get the biggest bonuses I could with my works and all that other stuff because I wanted, quote unquote, to take care of my family who I never saw because I was too busy working. I'd come in, my check went in the bank and, and Lynn and the kids got to spend it. I put gas in the car and that's about as much money as I spent. Is doing it wrong because they're putting their work before God. You can do everything right and still be doing it wrong because you're doing it with the wrong motive and the wrong desires. If I put my work first, I'm a good worker, I'm doing everything honest and, and all of that, but, but my idol is that work and I sacrifice everything else in my life to that work, I mean, I'm not embezzling, I'm not stealing, I'm not cheating, I'm not taking advantage of other people, I am just 
going out, working my butt off, work has become my idol, it's still wrong. The ones that are really the ones that are, are the ones we want to look at are the people who are making whatever it is an idol. There are people who may not be work. It can be entertainment and, and, re, and recreation. There are people who have gotten blessed by God financially, and they go out and they buy their RVs and their, and their quads and their boats and their summer home and their, and their this, that, and the other thing. And the next thing you know, because they're trying to use all their toys, you never see them in church, so they take the blessing that God gave them and use it wrong. No, I'm not saying that either. I'm not even saying there's something wrong with it. But I'm just saying, you know, we all know people who have done that. You know, they've gotten blessed by God, and all of a sudden they've got to, they get their RV, and they've got to go on an eight-month road tour, and on the, for the whole eight months they never go to a church. Okay? Now, I'm not even saying there's something wrong with the eight-month tour, but if, if you never spent time with God and, and visiting churches or anything, then you have changed what got you there and, and substituted it. Anything be can become an idol and take us away from God if we're not careful. Even things that in and of themselves are good. Family can be, become an idol. Where I want to do everything with my family except go to church and all these other things. I'm going to have fun with my family. I'm going to be with my family all the time. And I'm, Anything good can become an idol in our life and be used for, for wrong. Without going into all the crazy things that we know were sin. But he says, you've got to hearken to the prophet, the teacher. We listen to them. Why do I listen so much to other, other pastors and teachers? Is because I need to be taught. I need to have input into my life. I'm perfectly capable of tearing the Bible apart and getting down into the nitty gritty and be, being taught by the Holy Spirit as much as anybody else. But there is a time when the Holy Spirit will use others teaching us, give us different ways of thinking. Because the one thing we have is if we're, if we're going to be the God of our Bible, you know, we're going to, you know, we're listening to the Holy Spirit, but it, it's going to be limited to what I understand, what I know, what I can see. And there's going to be a lot of things that I will never get just between the Holy Spirit and the, and the, and the Word. And I'm not degrading the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong. It's it is the only way to study. And what I tell when I, do, when I teach my how to study the Bible, I tell them the two most important tools in studying the Bible are prayer and the Holy Spirit. But even having said that, it's just like I've said this before. If I have an auto repair manual in my hand and I'm going to go out and fix my car, can I fix my car assuming that it's a good enough auto repair manual like the Chilton's used to be? <laughs> Yes, you can fix your car with the pictures and the step-by-step. -step. It would probably take you a lot longer than if you had your best buddy who's a mechanic come in and say, let me show you how to do this. Okay, and they show you how to do the work. There's a big difference in learning that way. Uh, you can learn to cook on your own. You can sit there and practice with the spices and com combine things and realize that you just combine two spices that just don't go together the hard way after you've done it. Or you can take some lessons from a cook and say, no, you don't put those two together, but this and this and this, they, they taste really good together. It's the same thing with God's Word. Can we learn it by ourselves with the Holy Spirit? Yes. But it is so much easier to have somebody come along who's been there, 
gone through the hard training, who knows how to research and say this is, this is what it says. Then you go and prove what they say and you go, okay, yes, it's good. This is why we meet together as a body of Christ, so that we can have others speak into our life. Because we need that. We need each other. And I've, and I've shared this with you, and I'm really serious with this. Some of the greatest things I have heard from the Bible have been from somebody who's only been saved for a couple weeks to months or even years, and they come in and they go, I, I saw this last night when I was reading the Bible. And sometimes what they come out with is very, very, very profound. We need each other to be able to share those kind of things that say, this is what's good. It's okay to be accountable to somebody or having somebody to be we all need somebody to be accountable to. We all need somebody that we can that has the permission to come to our come to us and say, "How are you doing in this area that you have told me is your weakness?" But we need to have somebody that we do that. And that doesn't mean stand up in the middle of church one day and yell out your weaknesses. No, but you find somebody you know you can trust. Uh, the men that I met with for a long time, and I and I'm needing to find some some guys again to do this with. But I met with them, and we knew each other's weaknesses and, and strengths, and we spent time talking, and we prayed with each other, and, and we knew that we could go to each other when we saw some, something in our life, you know, the other's life, and actually very pointedly say, I'm very concerned because I'm seeing this in your life. And, and we had permission to do that with each other. We need to develop those relationships with people. Men have a harder time developing that relation than most women. Most women, they get together when within, within an hour or two, they know everything there is to know about each other and, and, their, and their families and then more. I mean, and not all women, but in general, women have this greater capacity to just open up. The groups that I have been in, and I've done it on three occasions, and it's very true of men, it usually take men about a year, six months to a year, before they will start to open up. And even then, it's something really minuscule to see if it's going to be protected. And, and after a year and a half or so, they will usually be able to open up in that group and say really personal things. Part of it is just men, that is the way men are. We're, we're guarded, we're, we're defenders, we're protectors, and we're, we protect ourselves in just that same way. We need the accountability to one another. We need somebody that we can be that way with. We need somebody that we are teaching godly, godly activities and, and Bible with. We also need to have somebody that is teaching us. Now, Jesus had 12 men that he taught, and he poured his whole life into them. I don't think anybody can handle 12 people. Jesus was perfect. He could, he could handle 12 people, but we all should have one or two people that we're teaching, and we need somebody that can teach us. I have people that if I have some questions, I know who I can go to and ask my questions to. And I'm working on learning to, to teach other people. And I've got a whole church now of people. But there's certain people in the church that I'm closer to than others that I work with and, and, and deal a little harder with. But we need those people that are teaching. I still have my kids that I'm teaching. They still call me up every once in a while to ask me questions and, and directions and things. So I'm still investing into my kids. We need those people that we are investing. What am I learning? Let me teach it to you. A lot of times it starts out by being our family, and that's our best place for it. Our family is our best place for it. If you've done a bad job and your kids aren't there, then find somebody else. Find All right, verse uh, 21. Oh, verse 20. 
But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. This is something that is pretty good, important to understand. It presume. It's the idea of uh, acting foolishly, seething up, boiling up. There are some people who just can't help but speak foolishness. We've all met people like that. You know, if they're opening their mouth, uh, they, it seems like they're just saying dumb things all the time. All the time. They're just, you know, saying things that make no sense, have nothing to do with anything. And he says, if you've got a prophet who is just speaking things that are against him, or they're speaking in the name of other gods, that person deserves to die. Now, in our day and age, we're not going to go kill people because they're prophesying in the name of of the other gods, but he, in Deuteronomy, we're talking about a theocracy. God was the governor of this, and it was, if you didn't follow God, you, you died. Much of the Middle East and its Muslim, when it's ruled by Muslims, are a theocracy. If you don't do things the way the Quran specifies, you will be killed. And they got a lot of capital punishments that, that are out there. But God is saying, they need to be, and this is something we need to be careful of. If you know somebody who is speaking the wrong, teaching wrong, and, and speaking in the name of other gods, don't spend a lot of time being near that person, okay? Because it will lead you astray. It will poison your mind. This is the problem with gossip and saying bad things about people. Think about this. Have you ever had somebody tell you something bad about somebody and you knew the person was a good person, but so you didn't believe what they said? And then you heard somebody else say it and all of a sudden all this little bit of a doubt starts coming in your mind because you're hearing garbage about these, this person. huh? Slander. Slander, garbage, lies, whatever it might be. It might even be truth. You know, we see this in our political world all the time. You know, we're seeing a pretty good leader being grilled in the in the senate right now and having all kinds of lies spoken about him and people aren't believing it but the thing is the world has learned if you yell something long enough loud loud enough that gets believed this is how evolution got to be so strong of thing they just kept saying the lie often enough long enough loud enough that it started being oh it must be true our Constitution, people will say the separation of church and state is in the Constitution. They say it long enough, loud enough, often enough that people now believe that it's there. Even if you give them a copy of the Constitution and ask them to find it, they still have been told that it's there, so they believe that it's there, even though they've never read the Constitution to see that it isn't there. Okay? We have all of these things that, that get, get taught. It can happen in a church just as easily. That something can be taught over and over and over and over and over again to the point where people start believing it. In our day and age in America, we're teaching this whole idea that if you do enough good, you're going to be okay. That's not going to happen in this church while I'm here, but it's, but it's taught in a lot of churches. Do enough good, and you're going to be okay. It's not in the Bible, but yet that's what gets taught, and people start to believe it. And this is why I keep going, we need a biblical world view. We need to filter everything we believe through the Bible. When you hear something, we look in the Bible and say, is it true according to Scripture? If it's not, we get rid of it. If it is, we accept it. And it's very important. 
This is why I say I want this whole church to be Bereans. I want people to search out the scriptures. When something's said, I want you to search out the scriptures. If I say it, search them out. If you hear somebody on the radio say it, search it out. If you hear, you hear one of the other people in the church say it, search it out. It's important that we find out what it is we're supposed to know. And it has to be filtered through the scriptures. Everything. And if you get enough of the scriptures in your brain, you can do it automatically. It's amazing. The more of the scriptures you have in your brain, the more you've studied, you hear something. And hopefully you've been there where you hear something and it just sounds wrong. You don't know why it's wrong. You just know that it's not right. And you go in and you research it. And I've shared many times, because I oftentimes, have, and for many years, I've had Christian radio on in the background. Sometimes just in the background, it's noise. And there's been times when I kind of go, what did that guy just say? You know, everything in my body is just saying, you've just heard something wrong. Start paying attention and I start listening to him going, wow, I didn't know that that song was that bad or that preacher was that bad. The Holy Spirit will help us, but we need to have the Word of God in us enough to have something to draw from. The Holy Spirit will fill our mouths, but not if we're an empty brain. <laughs> he has something in the brain to draw from. He's just not going to magically pop thoughts into our head that have no training involved in them. So the more we study, the more we get into it, the more we'll have to be drawn from. Verse 21, and if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Verse 22 says, if the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. But the prophet that has spoken it presumptuously, he shall, you shall not be afraid of him. No matter what he says, you're not afraid of the one who's not speaking God's word. And for us in our day, if you hear something that does not match up to the word of God, from, from a pastor, from somebody claiming to be a prophet, from somebody speaking. If it's contrary to the word, it is not true. I've shared with you a lot of times when I was meet younger people and I'd be talking to them, they go, well, I think I'm supposed to get married to this person. They're not a Christian, but I really think God's telling me to get married to them. I could very confidently say, no, God is not telling you to get married to them. Well, how do you know? Because God says, don't be unequally yoked. So what you're hearing is not from God. And this is something we always need to remember. If we are hearing God, think we're hearing God say to do something that is contrary to the word of God, it doesn't have to be Satan. We have enough of our own, our own evil desires, but it is definitely not God if it goes against the word of God. And this is something that is very important for us to understand. God says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and so much more as you see the day approaching thinking to yourself, well, I can just skip church for the next month or year or whatever, and no problem. No, you're not being hearing from God. Now, that does not mean you can't skip a service or a Bible study and, and go camping or take a trip or take a vacation or whatever it is. If that becomes something that you do all the time. Well, see, that's exactly, I was going to say, when I'm on vacation, I'm going to be in a church on Sunday morning and probably Sunday night and Wednesday night. I mean, I'm very likely to go to church just as if I was in my hometown, I'll find a church to go to. But it's so important that everything we do gets filtered through the God's word. Everything. If it is contrary to the Bible, then it's wrong. Plain and simple. It's not right. It's not something you need to live by. And this is when I say, 
in our day and age right now, we've got a lot of people doing what they're calling designer religion. They're picking and choosing what they want to believe. I like this part of Christianity. I like this part of Buddhism. I like this part of Hinduism. I like this part of Taoism. And they create their own religion. What are they doing? They are elevating themselves to the level of God. I can choose what's good and what's bad, and I'm going to choose what I'm going to believe. And that's what they're doing. We need to be able to say, I'm going to pin my whole life on something. And I've shared with you, I'm pinning my whole life and my eternity <laughs> that this is word, the word of God. Now, the relationship I have with God and on it has proven to me that he is God. The fact that there is no contradictions in the word of God proves to me that he's God and that I've made a good decision. The only way I know is when I step across that line of death and find myself in heaven and say, yes, everything proves out now. I'm absolutely sure that it will. Absolutely sure that it will. But you know, and I've said this over and over again, even if for some reason eternity isn't what God says it's going to be and there's nothing there, I have led a great life and a very peaceful life and everything. And because God has fulfilled his promises here, I am absolutely sure that he will fulfill his promises in the afterlife. If we cannot trust him now with this word and today, how could we even begin to think that he's going to be honest in the future, in the afterlife? We are placing our bet in, on God. Every other religion is placing their bet in their book, in their religion, and it's very scary for most of them because there's no guarantee of anything for them. God says, you're in a relationship with me. I'm, you're mine for eternity. And that's a wonderful place to be. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word. Lord, we ask that you help us learn to filter everything through your word. Help us learn your word well enough to be able to do that. Lord, if there's anybody listening to this that doesn't know you, we ask that you lead them to admit that they're a sinner, repent from their sins, and turn to you. Ask you to come into their heart and fill their life, Lord, and that they will become a Christian and they will start a life with you. And Lord, we just ask you to go with us today as we go about our business. In your son's name, amen.